Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. They make it easier than ever to discover the right content to enrich your life. As a leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible has thousands of titles, including audiobooks, groundbreaking originals, podcasts, and so much more. I love listening to audiobooks on long car trips, which of course I'm constantly on because I live in Los Angeles and it takes 30 minutes to go five miles. Recently, I've been listening to Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and it is perfect for commuting or driving around the city because it's so funny. I love that it's narrated by Tina Fey. It feels like she's telling me a story on my drive. Right now, you can get one month of Audible for free by using offer code UNRULY. That will get you one free audiobook to enjoy on your next long drive. Go to audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. And let me know what you pick because I want to know what to listen to next. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y to get your free audiobook. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm covering Zhang Sao, the famous pirate queen and the most successful pirate of all time. But before we jump into her life and how she became the most powerful pirate in the South China Sea, I want to give a huge thank you to all the paying subscribers on Substack who make this podcast possible. Y'all are the best, and this podcast really wouldn't be possible without you. If you want to support Unruly Figures and my mission to make interesting history free, you can do that at unrulyfigures.substack.com. Becoming a paying subscriber will also give you access to exclusive content, subscriber-only polls, merch, and behind-the-scenes info on the podcast. So go to unrulyfigures.substack.com to check it out. Now, uh, Sao was suggested to me by, like, literally dozens of people. Normally, I try to acknowledge when someone suggests an episode, but to be honest, I honest, I just stopped writing down names for this one. So sorry. Um, but if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can do that also on the Substack. Alright, let's hop back in time. You might know her as Qingxie or Sao, or maybe just Madam Qing. She's had a lot of names throughout history because, well, the thing is, Zheng Yi Sao just means wife of Zheng Yi. For a long time, we didn't know her real name, though I actually just recently learned from Professor Ronald C. Poe in the BBC podcast You're Dead to Me that we think her birth name was Shi Young and that she was born around 1775. But beyond that, we don't know much. We're not sure where she was born or who her parents were or if she had siblings. I feel like I say that a lot in these episodes. But this is kind of what happens when we're talking about basically everyone born pre-1900. There just wasn't the same thorough documentation of every single person being born. And so even when normal people did something that landed them in the historical record, sometimes early details just didn't get recorded. So we enter Zhong Yisao's story then when she's already an adult and living in a coastal city. Chinese culture at this point was a, usually a strictly Confucian culture, which, among other things, meant that women were meant to stay home and take care of the family, while men went out and worked. But among the lower classes, and in especially coastal cities like where and how Zhong Sao probably lived, this moral standard was a lot more relaxed because, well, it simply wasn't possible. <laughs> if everyone in the family wanted to eat, they needed two incomes or more. Along the Chinese coastline, women sailed alongside men. 
Women who lived on the coast often piloted sampans, a small boat that looks a little bit like a raft, selling necessities to people who lived full-time on boats. And some entire families did live on ships for most of the year. They lived together and worked together on their ships. So I think we can leave behind kind of the European belief that having women on ships is bad luck, which we saw a little of in the Anne Bonny episode. Now, China was actually in a huge period of prosperity here. The 18th century had seen a lot of rapid population growth, and the empire itself was politically pretty stable. Emperor Qianlong, one of the most successful rulers of the entire Qing dynasty, was expanding borders and overseeing a time of great economic growth. Trade with Britain and other European powers was especially strong at this point, meaning that exports of silk, porcelain, and tea were at like an all-time high. Money was pouring into the hands of merchants, and ships weighed down with like incredibly valuable cargo were sailing in and out of Canton in southern China at like an incredible rate. Canton and the region it's in, Guangdong, are often seen as the terminus of the maritime Silk Road because so much trade was passing through there. So even though things were looking really good for the emperor, life for the average person was getting a little worse. Qianlong had a habit of spending money from the royal coffers on himself, and other members of the government started kind of following suit, leaving less for communal resources for the common people. Professor Poe, in the podcast that I mentioned earlier, pointed out that, quote, a dangerously unequal distribution of wealth and a sudden increase in the cost of living was really hurting regular people throughout China at the close of the 18th century. Uh, local revolts and rebellions across China had actually popped up in response, which was increasing kind of the instability going on. This led to the somewhat unique phenomenon of piracy as like a seasonal job. During good fishing seasons, um, sailors might have worked legit legitimate jobs on fishing boats, um, but then when the fish migrated and that work wasn't as available, they turned to piracy to like eat and make ends meet. So as the 18th century became the 19th, our heroine's future husband, Zhang Yi, and his crew of sailors became pirates. They started out stealing food, but they ended up being so good at theft that they got more daring. They started stealing silks, spices, and gold, and they were soon making enough money that their one ship became a small fleet. At the same time, the bustling trade in the port of Canton led to another unique feature of life in China at this point. Flower boats. Sounds kind of cute and sweet, right? Um, they were basically floating brothels. I'm honestly sort of surprised that no one else thought of this during the golden age of piracy in Europe and the Americas, or maybe they have and I just have somehow never heard of them. Um, but anyway, the, the flower boats were places where women entertained men with music, dancing, drinking, and sex. As a side note, opium hadn't been brought to China yet, uh, but it soon would. Um, our heroine, Shi Young, still called that at this point, um, worked on one of these flower boats. It's unclear what her role was on board. A lot of people assume that she was a prostitute. She might have been, or she might have been a singer, or a dancer, or played games, or served drinks. There's really no way to know for sure. Um, but using her position on the flower boat, she started to expand her responsibilities. Yeah, let's call it that. Uh, she became befriending, or maybe just slickering up, uh, some of the wealthier clients that came on board. And she started getting secrets out of them, and then trading those secrets to other wealthy people, obviously in exchange for money. <laughs> this not only gave her a little bit of extra money, but it also probably increased her own power on the ship and within kind of this sort of maritime subculture. Which is great, because her life is about to change hugely, and her own sense of initiative is going to be very helpful. It was 1800 or 1801, when Xiong was in her early to mid-twenties, that the most famous pirate of her age came on board her flower boat. 
There's a romantic tale of the meeting between Shi Yong and Zheng Yi that is almost certainly apocryphal, but I'm going to repeat it here because it's charming in like a dastardly bodice ripper novel kind of way. Um, so I got this version from Laura Sook Duncombe's book Pirate Women, um, and if you want to, per to peruse it for yourself. So they say that Zheng Yi was a wealthy-ish pirate who already had a son. His first wife had died, so he was in search of a new one. He sent a few of his men to the nearest flower boat and had them kidnap the most beautiful prostitutes on board so he could pick one as his wife. When the women were brought to him, our heroine clearly outshone them all, so he immediately proposed to her. When she was untied and ungagged so that she could answer him, she flew into a rage and lunged at him, trying to claw his eyes out. Of course, this display of ferocity only endeared Zhang Yi to her, and he now begged her to be his wife. He promised her jewels and silks and a life of luxury if she wed him. She looked around at his probably sumptuous captain's room on his ship and said that she would marry him if, and only if, he gave her half of his ships and half of his wealth. He accepted, so she accepted, and the two were wed in 1801. It's almost certainly made up, but it has, like, a kind of romance to it, right? Um, other versions of their meeting have Zheng Yi meeting her on board her flower boat and falling in love immediately. Again, the promises of wealth and luxury, again, the bargain, again, the marriage. Um, sometimes he visited her, visited several times, falling in love with her slowly until she made him promise to marry her and steal her away. Um, it's well documented that Xi Young was very ambitious herself. I mean, I think that secrets anecdote I told you before kind of makes that clear. Um, so maybe she somehow convinced him that she was like a good investment. Um, she had proven herself capable of getting secrets out of other wealthy people after all, and that investment might have been worth something. The bargain though, half of his ships and half of his wealth, is almost always part of the story. But the thing is, like, I have to assume that there was love involved here, as we'll see, Zheng Yi wasn't looking for a mom for, like, Zheng Yi Jr., like, or a servant to cook and clean. After they married, you know, Zheng Yi Sao became a real partner for him and proved herself to be an invaluable addition to the crew. And so, I don't know, I don't, this doesn't seem like a marriage of convenience to me or, like, a marriage of, like, propriety or whatever. Um... But so anyway, soon after they were wed, uh, the couple was approached by the one surviving leader of the Vietnamese Taishan Rebellion, uh, Win Hu. The Taishan Rebellion had been going on for about 25 years by this point and was kind of choking on its last dying breaths. It had started strong, with three Win brothers leading the peasants in central and northern Vietnam in a rebellion for better rights and kind of more local power. Uh, the brothers had initially established themselves as, like, feudal states with a sort of monarchical structure, but by 1801, when Win Hu approached Zheng Yi, most of it had fallen to infighting, greed, and bad management. But nevertheless, Win Hu hired the pirates to fight for the Vietnamese, providing them with money, weapons, and, most importantly, training. Through a quick and intense, like, military training, he transformed them from a ragtag group of thieves into, like, an elite fighting force, capable of fighting together instead of just fighting. The Taishan Rebellion was eventually crushed, and in 1802, the pirates were just kind of sent back to China at sort of a loose end. They could keep stealing, of course, but without, like, a unified goal, infighting started. The large group split into various bands with various pirates rebelling against Zheng Yi and deciding to strike out on their own. It's unclear what Zheng Yi and Zheng Yi Sao were doing for the next few years, but in 1805, they had a plan and went to execute. They created a confederation of pirates. Clearly, the militaristic atmosphere of fighting in Vietnam had kind of worked for them, so the Zheng couple emulated it. 
It's important to note that while Zheng Yi remained a figurehead at this point, Zheng Yi Sao was really the one handling the logistics. And isn't that how it always goes? The husband is the head, and the, but the wife controls the neck? Mm. Anyway, they tempted everyone back into the fold, creating six fleets, each with their own commander. The six fleets were classified by the color of flag they flew, red, black, green, yellow, blue, and white. Zhong Yi's personal fleet was the red fleet, and then captains of the other fleets reported back to him. I'm not going to go through the leaders of each fleet, but I do want to just note that the commander of the black fleet was the notorious pirate Ku Po Tai. He not only had an incredibly fierce reputation, but he was also a great lover of literature, and his ship was famous for its, quote, impressive library. <laughs> As worldhistory.org describes, quote, the commanders operated in previously agreed lanes so as to not get in each other's way. And the colored flags were particularly useful when sailing at the edges of these zones or when target vessels were being pursued through two or more zones. When a pirate ship came across another ship flying the agreed color flag for that area, the captain knew it was a fellow member of the Confederation and so did not attack it or interfere with an ongoing pursuit. End quote. So this is the structure that they built up, and it worked really well. The fleet was becoming quite wealthy and was close to unstoppable. The ships they used were called junks, which could carry up to 800 pounds of cargo and 40 cannons. They were particularly excellent for approaching coastal cities because they had, quote, a flat bottom and a very high stern. Their rudder could be raised, which allowed them to enter shallow waters other large ships could not. Bigger junks could even carry longboats that could be lowered into the water and transport men in for a sneak attack. I'll include uh, a photo in the transcript so that you can see it for yourself. They attacked ships, of course, and didn't really care whose flag the ship flew. If it was a Chinese ship, they sometimes press-ganged the crew into service, and they sold the goods they sold to European merchants at a discount. The merchants, of course, tended to turn a blind eye to this practice, except when the pirates attacked European ships and kidnapped European crews to ransom them back to their country. There are a lot of records indicating that Chinese sailors who were taken in an attack were frequently tortured after they were captured, either to force them to reveal where, like, more valuables were, or simply, quote, on a sadistic whim, end quote. Uh, but there are no records of Europeans being tortured when captured in similar attacks. It's unclear why. Perhaps the pirates thought they would get less money if the kidnappees were injured? Perhaps they thought injuring them would be a step too far and foreign governments would see it as an act of war. Zheng Yi was paying Chinese government officials to turn a blind eye on their violence, but like maybe they couldn't do the same with officials from other countries. I'm saying this all like it's a question because I'm not quite sure where the discrepancy in treatment is coming from. But the account of John Turner, an English sailor, describes some of this torture of Chinese sailors really vividly. He was taken captive by Zheng Yi's crew from a British ship sailing from India in 1806. He wrote a 20-page account of his ex experience in 1809, um, and if descriptions of violence turn your stomach, maybe skip ahead about like 45 seconds. According to Turner, a Chinese captive on board was, quote, fastened to the deck by large nails, which were inhumanly driven through his feet, and was then beaten with four rattans twisted together till he vomited blood. After remaining for some time in the most excruciating pain, he was taken on shore and cut into several pieces. End quote. According to Professor Ronald C. Poe, this was a punishment reserved for members of the Chinese Imperial Navy, though Turner doesn't make that distinction in his account. It's probable that since he didn't speak any of the Chinese dialects, he just didn't realize that's who these people were. It's also totally possible that Turner is exaggerating the lurid details to sell more copies of his book. 
Either way, Turner's treatment was not nearly so violent. He ate the same food as the crew and wasn't harmed, though his sleeping arrangements left a lot to be desired. After several months on board the ship, Turner was finally ransomed for $2,500, a huge amount at the time, though they had actually initially asked for $10,000. Perhaps understandingly, Turner's account of this whole experience is titled The Sufferings of John Turner, and you can read it for free online um, through the University of California, San Diego, if you're interested. In addition to kidnapping merchants and stealing expensive products, the pirates also began to attack actual military fortresses, overwhelming them through sheer numbers. By this point, the Zhang couple had at least 300 ships sailing under the combined command of all of their fleets, and each ship could hold over 100 people, so we're talking about like 70,000 men that were under their command. This is still a part-time job for some of these folks, by the way, like they might still be fishermen in the morning, go home, have lunch, and then like go to their evening job aboard these pirate ships, or like maybe they'd be home for one season, then on board a pirate ship for another season. So it wasn't 70,000 folks like at all times, but still, now you get why it's probably so easy for them to just steal from fortresses using like sheer numbers alone. Like you probably didn't even have to be a good fighter. You kind of just had to show up. Um, from the fortresses, they would steal cannons, cannonballs, and gunpowder for use in the rest of their naval conflicts. In the process of these kidnappings, the pirates would occasionally end up with women on board. According to Turner, if they were beautiful, they might be held as wives or concubines for the captains, but the rest would be returned home or ransomed if they thought her family was rich. He makes a note that captains of the ships might have had three or more wives and concubines, but that, quote, once made the choice of a wife, they are obliged to be constant to her, no promiscuous intercourse being allowed amongst them, end quote. Which I think is kind of an interesting limit. This is the kind of like small little detail that keeps me coming back to history. Like each culture establishes their own rules of acceptability and those rules are ever shifting. And we can infer a lot about the past from learning what their rules were. Like this one saying that basically polygamous relationships were acceptable in a one way for men only sort of sense. But lying and cheating wasn't. It straddles the line of what today we'd call ethical non-monogamy because while men could be punished for cheating on their three wives, women didn't really have a choice in the matter. Like if their husband took a second or third wife, it seems like women just had to accept that, at least outwardly, and women weren't allowed to also have like a second husband. So it's uneven for sure, um, but there are still limits on what men are allowed to do that are being imposed on them by like society writ large and not just by religion, which is, I don't know, I think that's really interesting. Um, but anyway, speaking of women on board, if you're familiar with the practice of footbinding, you might be asking yourself if Jung Sao had her feet bound. If you're unfamiliar, footbinding is when a girl's feet are broken at the toes and the arch and then bent and bound um, using bandages into a much smaller shape in order to make the foot kind of like permanently smaller. The goal was to have a foot that was only three inches long, known as like the golden lotus foot, though most people did not achieve this. <laughs> This was practiced for a thousand years. It has its roots in the 10th century and wasn't really banned until the formation of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And for a lot of that time, it was considered the height of eroticism. A lot of contemporary um, Chinese love and sex manuals had, quote, copious notes on how to use the bound foot as a pleasure tool complete with explicit artwork, end quote. A woman with bound feet could walk, but with a very unsteady gait. And it was a practice largely reserved for the wealthy because, I mean, women with bound feet couldn't work. Though, I mean, it did trickle down to the lower classes and sometimes a woman's foot might have been unbound after marriage, kind of enabling her to work. 
Uh, though I don't know that it would have ever truly healed back to what it would have been had it never been bound. It's, I, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, the pictures make me very uncomfortable, so I kind of didn't look too deeply into this. But if you're interested, there's a ton of information out there about it. Um, considering that Zheng Yisao worked as a courtesan on the flower boats, I think we can assume that she probably didn't come from a wealthy family and therefore she probably didn't have bound feet. In fact, I suspect that there probably weren't a lot of women with bound feet on ships at all, to be honest. There's not really evidence either way, but I just keep thinking about how hard it can be to walk on an unsteady ship today, even if you're wearing shoes meant for it. If these women were already unsteady on their feet, I think that would have only been made worse with a ship actively shifting beneath them. It just doesn't seem safe, but I don't, you know, who knows. Um, I'd mentioned a son earlier. There's a little debate about the timing of this, but basically at some point, this power couple adopted a son named Chung Pao. I say child, the boy was a teenager by this point. A lot of what I've read said that this happened before Zheng Yi married Shi Young, but Professor Po was saying in that podcast I mentioned earlier that they were already married when they both adopted him. Regardless of when he was adopted, um, he probably was adopted because the couple wanted a son who could inherit their pirate kingdom. Um, and this is a real thing, by the way. In European piracy, we don't really think of piracy as a job that's being passed down, but it was in China, much like other family businesses. Now, there's some, well, uncomfortable rumors and realities connected to this, so um, I'm going to just issue like a trigger warning for mentions of sexual violence for the next minute or so. Um, so I didn't see this reported in a lot of places, but there's some speculation to be had about the nature of the relationship between Zheng Yi, Pirate King, and Chang Pao. According to the World Encyclopedia, Chang Pao became Zheng Yi's son and lover kind of in one fell swoop. Uh, Chang Pao may have been kidnapped initially, and historian D. Cordingly notes, quote, It was not unusual to take captives and force them to join the pirate community by means of sexual assaults. Consequently, it is difficult to know to what extent homosexuality was willingly practiced by the participants and to what extent it was forced on captives by pirate leaders, end quote. Accordingly, is writing kind of more generally than just Zheng Yi, of course, so this isn't necessarily accusing Zheng Yi of anything, but it is worth noting that this is a possibility. I hope it's not the case, and there's evidence to suggest that it's not, but I also don't want to say it definitely isn't. I mean, this may have been a consensual affair. The World Encyclopedia notes that in reviewing um, just Chinese trial records from 1796 to 1800, uh, 50 known cases of same-sex affairs between male pirates appear. And Turner possibly alludes to this as well in his account of his captivity published in 1809. After talking about the captains taking concubines from kidnapped women, he also says, quote, but the greater part of the crew were satisfied without women, end quote. It's a bit of a throwaway line in his account, so it's hard to tell exactly what he means, but satisfied has been a euphemism for orgasm for a pretty long time, and he is currently talking about, like, concubines and wives and sex, so it's, I don't maybe that's what he's referring to, it's not 100% clear. Um, but regardless of how the nature of this relationship started or how consensual it was, Zhang Yi seems to have been playing favorites with Chang Pao, designating him as his heir to this like 70,000 strong pirate empire. He's being actively trained to lead even. And Zhang Yi Sao is also doting on him, kind of like a mother might. So that seems to be the nature of his relationship with her, at least, you know, for now. Then in 1807, tragedy struck. It's unclear how, but Zheng Yi died in November of that year. 
He was either thrown overboard and drowned during a typhoon or was killed by a cannonball during fighting. Both stories are kind of like equally repeated throughout the records. Now, because Chinese seafaring culture was hazardous, uh, in the case of one spouse dying, it was not uncommon for the remaining spouse to just take over their responsibilities. But the stakes here were pretty high. This is not a normal situation, and it was a potentially dangerous moment for Zhang Yisao. Without a husband, she could have been thrown off the ship. Someone else could have taken over. So she did the smart thing and secured the support of two of her late husband's leading commanders. In a vote to see who would take over, Zhang Yisao came out on top. And as I had mentioned earlier, she was the one who was actually handling all of the logistics all this time anyway, so it probably wasn't really like too difficult to get the pirate support, but definitely securing those two big um, commanders helped her out a lot. That said, she realizes that Zheng Yi had been a pretty good figurehead and that she needed another one, so she promoted their adopted son, Chong Pao, to become the commander of the Red Fleet, which is still the strongest of the six squadrons they, um, they had created a few years before. Chong Pao had already been trained for this anyway, um, and he's loyal to her, so it's perfect. But to really secure this alliance, uh, she marries Chong Pao. As a reminder, they are not actually related. <laughs> which is a little bit comforting, uh, though this is still sort of unusual family dynamics. Um, but he benefited too. He got to be the new pirate king uh, without having to handle all of the management and paperwork and logistics. He has big, like, warrior, not a scholar energy, you know? So they're both getting a lot out of this. For the record, female leadership wasn't, like, completely unheard of in Chinese culture. China had an empress before, but it had been a while since Empress Wu, about 1100 years to be exact. So Zheng Yisao leading this pirate army was, it was unusual. So having Chong Pao as a new figurehead did help her secure her own power. But I also suspect that it, the fact that she was also present and in charge for a few years before her husband died also really helped a lot. Now, one of the first things Zheng Yisao did after she kind of took over was start establishing a passport system. Merchants had long paid the pirates off for protection, but now she created a formal passport system instead of just like trying to remember who was up on their dues. Um, we say passport, but it's really more of a protection racket. Merchants would pay for a certificate of safe passage before going out on their journey, which would guarantee them safety both from Zhang's pirates and from anyone else. Because remember, this fleet is the biggest one in the South China Sea, but it's not the only one. So after she decided to start charging for protection, Zhang Yisao went a step further. She basically invented subscription services. <laughs> Merchants could buy safe passage one journey at a time, or they could buy an annual passport, which was more upfront but less expensive in the long run. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this fact. It's so amusing to me that she was out here just like giving bargains on protection money. Imagine someone in The Godfather doing the same thing. I mean, incredible. The best part is that it worked. I guess humans have always loved a bargain. It was kept quiet at the time, but even the British East India Company was paying Zheng Yisao protection fees. It was important to them that their merchandise, especially tea, got through her seas unscathed, so they just bought an annual subscription for all of their ships sailing in and out of Canton. She eventually began selling these passports to coastal towns too, so entire towns were both exempt from being pillaged and also protected by the pirates from other threats. In these towns, she set up, like, passport offices where people could go to get their papers so they didn't have to, like, I don't know, sail out into the sea to find her. I mean, she's basically her own separatist government, like, unto herself at this point. On board her ships, she was also making changes. She began by establishing some pretty strict law codes that the pirate army kind of had to follow. 
For instance, pirates who went on shore alone could have their ears sliced off in front of the crew, and if they did it again, they could be killed. Men could be immediately killed for disobeying a superior officer. If anyone was found to have raped a captive, that was also immediately punishable by death. But if you think she ruled solely through fear, she also had them pledge loyalty to an overarching system instead of to their local captain. So it helped keep them loyal to her. Then, to reinforce that loyalty, she established some pretty interesting religious practices on board the ships. Before every mission, they burned incense and the gods were consulted for their opinion on the mission. This is one of the many ways that Chung Pao was so helpful to her. He prearranged the responses from the gods in order to ensure that the so-called omens always favored whatever move Zhang Yixiao wanted to make next. 30 years later, Karl Marx would write that religion is the opium of the people, and I think this is a pretty good example of that. She also instituted a practice where after consulting the gods, but before the pirates actually went out on the mission, they would drink a brew made from wine and gunpowder for like energy and bravery. This also had the added benefit of helping them establish a fearsome reputation because even then people knew that drinking gunpowder was an insane idea, but they did it. Zheng Yixiao began to assert control over everyone's finances by creating a communal pot, which we saw something similar in the um, Anne Bonnie episode as well. But Zhang Yixiao started dividing up the booty they stole a little bit more fairly. 20% went to whoever was involved in seizing it. And the remainder went to a communal treasury, which she then like paid paychecks out of. So even if you were having an off week, weren't you know super successful at pirating, you still got paid. And of course, if a pirate was caught stealing from the loot, they could be killed immediately. <laughs> One more way a pirate could be killed, and I know you were wondering, how else could people be given the death penalty aboard these ships? Uh, was if they slept with someone and then didn't marry them. <laughs> Both participants were killed, actually. Men were beheaded and women were tossed overboard with weights attached to her legs. We're talking about consensual sex here. Zhang Yixiao was apparently even more against premarital sex than the Baptists, which makes me wonder about this idea that she was a prostitute before marrying Zhang Yi. Was this restriction put down to protect women that they encountered? Was it to discourage anyone having loyalty besides Zhang Yixiao? I couldn't find an explanation for why this rule was in place. But yeah, if a pirate had sex with someone, they had to get married the next morning. Them's the bricks. Meanwhile, Zheng Yixiao realizes that there's money to be made somewhere else. In salt. In southwest Guangdong province, there were around 20 salt farms. And yes, sea salt used to be farmed along the Chinese coast and is still farmed, though not always on like beachfront property. Now, Zheng Yixiao is not about to start farming. She instead starts attacking the fleet that transports the salt. You know, before she set her eyes on them, the Chinese government had about 270 salt ships. Pretty soon after she decided she wanted to be in the salt business, she had 266 salt ships and the Chinese government had four. To be clear, Zheng Yixiao's crew did not start farming, cleaning, or packaging the salt themselves. The same people who had been on board those ships before were still on board those ships. They were just doing things on Zheng Yixiao's terms now instead of the government's. It was basically a hostile corporate takeover, except she did a much better job with it than Musk seems to be doing with Twitter. Uh, she didn't have to lay off half the staff, at least. Remember what I said about how China was doing really well earlier? Well, things were starting to fall apart. Um, while the Emperor of China was focused on making money and territorial expansion west into Asia, the Navy was not at its best. It was not fun to be a member of the Chinese Navy at this time. The highlights were terrible food, aggressive punishments, and poor pay. 
So even though the emperor was watching the theft of the entire salt industry and thinking he'd sure like to stop her, the navy was too weak to do much. And of course, the weaker they were, the easier it was for her to steal their ships and recruit their sailors. It's a classic negative feedback loop for these guys. By 1805, the pirates outnumbered the navy three to one, and it seems like that ratio just kept sliding less and less in the navy's favor. According to Professor Poe, the Imperial Navy spent a lot of time at anchor and, like, making excuses about how the weather was unfavorable for them to go out and fight. Like, for years. The wind was just bad for years. Obviously, the Emperor knew this wasn't the case. The pirates were sailing, after all. Uh, but he couldn't do much about it because he didn't have the resources. Feeling perhaps even more ambitious than ever before, Zheng Yisao next set her sights on inland cities. The coastal cities had mostly paid her off and the navy was basically defeated, uh, so maybe she was bored? I don't know. But in 1809, she set her sights on the actual city of Canton. She had some of her pirates very politely post a notice around the city saying, hey, we're going to attack you, which sent the city into a complete panic. The reputation for violence had spread far and wide by this point, so it was a very effective intimidation tactic. It got people to either run or join her. Her attack on Canton ended up being very successful in terms of just getting everything that she wanted. So a few weeks later, she did the same thing in Macau. There, she stole the ship belonging to the Portuguese governor of Timor. She stole five American ships, and she blockaded a Thai diplomatic mission. Salt and piracy in her own country's navy apparently weren't enough, so she just started taking on other countries, basically. So remember when I said that she was basically setting herself up as a separatist government unto herself? Yeah, that's foreshadowing. Because at this point, everyone else began to see her that way too. European powers up until then had kind of accepted paying her bribes as a reality, but now she had gone too far. And the Chinese government kind of like looked around and was like, wait, she's beat our navy, she set up her own tax offices and passport system, and has begun to dominate the economy. This is unacceptable. They began to view her not as a nuisance, but as an outright rebel. So the Chinese government goes to the Americans, to the English, and to the Portuguese and asks for aid in defeating Zheng Yisao. In turn, they offer to open up more ports to trade, which if you know anything about Chinese history is going to turn out to be a very bad decision for China. Do the words opium wars ring a bell? Uh, but that's still in the future and no one sees it coming yet. Uh, for now, all four governments are tired of dealing with Zheng Yisao's floating fortresses, so they agree to send help. But it doesn't work. Even though all of these powers are sending in their best and their brightest, so to speak, uh, Zheng Yisao's pirate fleet is able to defeat them all. Handily. This is her home turf. She's unbeatable. Faced with this, the Chinese government goes in a different direction. The emperor knows he doesn't have the navy to defeat the pirates, nor the resources to build up his navy, so he goes with divide and conquer. He sends people to approach individual squadrons from her fleet and offer them basically a really nice military pension if they'll retire. He even gives some of them official titles so they can like move up in the world. And it works. The commander of the Black Fleet goes first, and that was a big blow because it was the second largest fleet after the Red Fleet, which Chung Pao was still in command of. Black and Red had long worked together in both fighting and the protection and racketeering game, so to lose that support was very significant. Now you may be thinking that, like many pirates, Zheng Yisao is going to hold on until the very end and go out in a blaze of glory, like her first husband did. And my friend, you would be wrong. She's in her 30s by now. She's been at sea at least 10 years, spent about nine of them commanding a pirate fleet. So she looks around, counts her chickens, so to speak, and she decides she's ready to retire. 
1810, she walked into the governor general's headquarters in Canton and was basically like, hey, it's me, your girl. I'm ready to make a deal. I'm not kidding. She really did this. I mean, she maybe didn't actually say those words, but she really did just kind of walk in. It's not clear if she was alone. I imagine she had some of her most like trusted pirate warriors with her for protection and probably at least one weapon on her, if not more. But I also would believe it if she was alone, because by this point, she was so feared in China that I think even if she was surrounded by a hundred people, they still might not have attacked her. They tentatively accepted her resignation, I guess. Uh, the government entered into negotiations with Zheng Yisao, but they stalled over disagreements about who would own the ships after this deal was done. Zheng Yisao retreated to her ship. Things kind of went back to the way they were for a couple of weeks. But remember, at least one entire squadron from her fleet had already defected for kind of a cushy retirement, and she was probably watching and expecting more of them to do the same, so she tried again. A few weeks later, she entered the governor general's headquarters for the second time. She was unarmed, her history is fairly sure about that, and in a very symbolic move, she also only had women and children with her, the wives and kids of the pirates and her crew. She re-offered her resignation-ish, re-entered negotiations, and secured a safe retirement for thousands of pirates and her crew in just two days. Many of them were even offered military positions, probably because they were better at being a navy than the Imperial Navy was. Uh, just like Zheng's crew was once trained by the Vietnamese fighters in the Taishan Rebellion, I imagine there was some educating and training happening once her former crew joined the Chinese military. Zheng Yisao was able to retain between 20 and 30 ships for herself, uh, and it seemed like she used them to create a merchant fleet of questionable legitimacy. She also got her marriage to Sheng Pao uh, recognized by the Chinese government, something that technically should have been illegal because she had already legally adopted him. And she walked away with the money. She got to keep most of it. This is a happy ending if any historical figure has ever had one. Now, I want to be really clear. Never before and never again was there a large-scale pirate surrender like this. Toward the end of the golden age of piracy in Europe and the Americas, peaceful surrenders and pardons were offered to pirates, but those happened on a case-by-case -case sort of basis. This is the only instance of pardons happening, quote, en masse through a single pirate ambassador. They were completely free to go. No restrictions. Never happened again. But of course, Zhang Yisao couldn't totally give up her life of crime. I think anyone who has ever watched any movie about any criminal who is any good at crime probably saw this coming. She is only 35 here, so she's not, like, ready to, like, retire to the countryside. She does, though, tone it down some from here on out. Because she was still married to Chung Pao, who became active in the military, um, he rose to the rank of colonel before retiring. Um, he was even awarded a peacock feather, which is sort of an equivalent to being awarded a military cross. It was a, it was a big deal. He died in 1822, so Zheng Yisao finished raising their son alone, because by the way, they had a son together in 1813 after they retired from piracy. His name was Chang Yulin. I don't really know what became of him, unfortunately, but we know he existed. Uh, when the first opium war started in the late 1830s, there are records showing that Zheng Yisao was advising the military on how to fight the British at sea. When that ended in the 1840s, she still wasn't done, she opened an illegal gambling house, a, a quote, notorious one, and might have even been involved in the smuggling of opium, despite helping the Chinese government fight against the smuggling in the first opium war. You know, you gotta play both sides sometimes. 
1844, so Zhang Yixiao died in Macau at the age of 69, still rich and in control of her life. Piracy, of course, still continued in the South China Sea, but her success as the pirate queen was never surpassed. She's remembered as the greatest pirate that ever lived. Surprisingly, or, well, maybe it's not that surprising, depending on your perspective, there's really not that much media about her, though. Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End features a character named Madame Ching, who is based on her, and Doctor Who um, had a recent episode that apparently features her, though I haven't seen it yet. Jorge Luis Borges wrote a short story called The Widow Ching, Lady Pirate, which I'll link to in the transcript and show notes. But her story was like largely ignored for over a century. I mean, in Asia, um, pirates are not really regarded as like pop culture icons the way that they are in the West, but it was even ignored by Western storytellers for a very long time. Thankfully, more and more people are getting to know her, so maybe we'll get a limited series about her soon. Are you listening, Amazon Prime? Netflix? HBO? You guys have my email. All right, that's the story of Zhang Sao, our pirate queen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures or by joining us over on Substack. If you have a moment, please give the show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.